0: People on their beds wherever they heard he was, and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might, that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the reading of. God's holy and inerrant word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd bless the reading and the preaching of your word. And I pray that we would, as a result of reading your word, that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the greatness of who our Lord is. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There's kind of three scenes going on here. We have Jesus right after feeding the 5,000. Mark does not spend really any time going into the response of the crowds. The crowds trying to make Jesus king in John chapter 6. Jesus trying to thwart them and get away. Instead, what Mark focuses on is Jesus himself. Mark's gospel is really concise. It's by far the shortest of any of the gospels. And his gospel is focused on the Lord, showing his actions that speak to who he is. And I wanted to start this morning at the end. That first section is where he's praying and is alone. The next section being Jesus out walking on the water. And that third section that starts in verse 53, Look at what happened when Jesus got over to the land. Immediately, right once he got off the boat, people recognized him. And he ran about, or really the crowds, people came, running about the entire region. Do I need to fix something? Okay. Okay. The entire region, people came to him from absolutely everywhere. People came to him from the villages, city and countryside. And I just wanna pause to say, how did they recognize Jesus? You know, it's kind of an interesting fact is when you're reading through the New Testament, we're never given, not even one physical description of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would make sense that they would know what what Caesar rather looked like, for his face was inscribed on the coins that they carried in their pockets. But besides him, they didn't have images everywhere. There was no photography. And really the only piece of evidence that we have of what Jesus looked like comes from a dead guy who lived 700 years before Jesus was born. That was Isaiah. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says of Jesus that he had no form or majesty, that we should look at him, no beauty, that we should desire him. How did people recognize Jesus? And there's an outline at the back of your bulletins, if you're following around. In my introduction, I chose to have a little fill in the blank there, that many who recognized Jesus did not even know who Jesus was the people were able to recognize Jesus because what they saw in him was his power and his authority. They saw that when they came to him, all who touched him were healed. And this right here, this scene that we have is one of the most amazing testimonies to God's goodness in general. Notice that the people who touched his cloak The focus is not on their faith, that they believe strongly enough, and that's why Jesus was able to heal them, or that they, their matter of life, the life that they lived previously, their holiness or their sinfulness. Indifferent to the person, whoever touched his cloak, because Jesus's power was so manifest to the world, all were healed. They recognized him by his power and his authority. And yet, having that outline that they did not know who he was. This same crowd, when they were the disciples, Jesus asked his disciples in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. He asked his disciples the question: Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Others say Elijah or one of the Old Testament prophets, you know, one of those really big guys, and he has to get out of them, but who do you say that I am? See, the crowd, not one of them, even though they were all recognizing Jesus, although they all knew Jesus and became familiar with him, they had no idea who he actually was. And that's, I think, something that we need to make sure that we do as well. We have to be really careful that being so familiar with the Bible stories, so familiar with the facts about who Jesus is, that we make sure we ask ourselves the question, what does it take to be able to say, I know who Jesus is? I know the Lord. That's really important. Because Jesus himself says in John chapter 17, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Our salvation depends upon knowing who Jesus is. So what does it take? to be able to say that you know who Jesus is? Well, I think the easiest way is to look at how Jesus reveals himself. Jesus in our text text today takes painfully detailed response in unveiling who he is. And we'll just ask ourselves a couple of uh, questions or rather looking at a couple of statements to figure out, who Jesus is and how he has revealed himself in his word. And looking at verse 45, now we can kind of start to answer that question. Immediately after he had done his miracle feeding the 5000 or really up to 25,000 people, Jesus urged his disciples or in the ESV says made his disciples get into a boat and to go before him to the other side. Jesus sparked this whole situation. And while I was reading this, you might have, if you've been tracking along and been listening to all the previous sermons, this sermon is, text is pretty familiar. Mark chapter 4, we've already read that the disciples went out on the, to the boat, that they got tossed on the seed, and they saw Jesus' divine glory. And Jesus is patient with them and does the same exact thing. This is kind of a repeat miracle, but with some pretty obvious differences. But in both cases, I just want to point out again as a quick aside to say that it was the disciples' obedience to Jesus' command that got them into trouble. I think that's a good reminder for those who are seeking to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, who understand that, yes, God loves us, but if we interpret that as we're not going to face any troubles in our life, we're setting ourselves with a list of false expectations for what this life is going to look like. As it turns out through the Gospels, those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ find themselves in times of trouble pretty frequently. After that, after they had taken leave of them, verse 46, Jesus, having dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray. See, I think one thing, if we're going to look at who Jesus is and answering that question, biblically, is something that we often overmiss and something I keep repeating over and over again, but it's something that they would have assumed, but something that's hard for us to get our minds around. Which is the fact that Jesus Christ was truly a human being. And if you want evidence that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the God was also that he became man. We can see that in the fact that he prayed. Now, obviously, the God-man, Jesus Christ, his prayers sound a lot different than our prayers. John chapter 11, we get a little insight into see what his prayers look like. And Jesus, when he's raising, about to raise Lazarus from the dead, In verse 40 of John chapter 11 says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. See, when we look at Jesus's prayer life, we see that there is a uniqueness to it. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. He prayed to his father in a way not in the sense of that his prayers were somehow getting, you know, asking God to do something that he was not aware of. Jesus was in on the plan, and Jesus sometimes would speak out loud, like he did in John chapter 11, to let people in on his prayers to see that he and the Father are one. But prayer is something that is indicative. Of our creatureliness, the fact that we pray is not something due just merely to our sinfulness. Yes, our sinfulness heightens our need to pray, heightens our dep- our sense of dependence upon God and His mercies to live every day. But part of the reality of being creatures is creatures are dependent upon God. Jesus, the human Jesus, depended on God for his sustenance, depended on God for his direction, depended on God's word for his life and how he should live to give him direction. Human beings, as part of our very createdness, depend upon God in prayer. And I know preachers have probably told you this all your lives, But it's funny how many times you can hear the same thing that we need to pray. And yet, I'm speaking of myself here, how often are our prayer lives empty, not praying? It's so easy just to presume upon God's grace in our lives. Presume on the fact that we can go to the grocery store and we don't have to worry about food. We don't have to worry about anything. And we start to be lulled into a false sense thinking that, We don't need God, but that's not true. And Jesus is not simply our example, but he does show here that human beings need to spend times alone with God in prayer. You know, not all mothers can send their disciples away and the crowd away to get time alone in prayer. Fathers have responsibilities at work, and sometimes there are points in life where you can't make times to spend in prayer, time set apart. What we need to do in this is we need to be helping each other in this. Fathers, help your wives to find time to prayer alone. Take the kids away. Let them have their time of prayer because they need it in order for their spiritual life to flourish. And wives, there's not too many wives here because they're on the women's retreat. But wives, support your husband. Encourage him to be strong, to be faithful, to organize his life in such a way that prayer, spending time with him, God is a priority. If we don't make a priority of it, we'll never end up doing it. The Lord Jesus Christ made time to pray, and that's indicative of the fact that he is a human being. But we see more than that in the reason why he set up this entire situation. Verse 48, he saw Jesus being on the mountain, looks down, and he sees his disciples that he had sent out at evening Making painful headway for the wind was against them. Mark here speaks to his Roman audience in a very Roman way. The Romans marked nighttime with four different watches, as if a guard of an army. You'd have different stations for the first watch of the night, the second watch of the night, the third watch of the night, and the fourth watch of the night. The first watch of the night, started at 6 p.m. and ended at 9 p.m. The second started at 9 and would go until midnight. The third started at midnight and went to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch of the night, which is when the disciples are here as we look at this, what they're in is from 3 a.m. to 6 p.m. Let's say they started in that a.m., thank you. Let's say that they started in the evening. Let's say it's six o'clock and they are now it's 3 a.m. They've been rowing for nine hours out on the water in a rowboat because the, ro- because the wind is against them. I think painfully, making painful headway is a pretty good description of what they're going through. They've been going all night long and Jesus waits while he's praying till three to 6 a.m. before he goes out to them. And he walks out on the sea. And the key there, if we're going to see this next point, that we see the divine glory of Jesus revealed, if we're going to understand this, we have to understand that really odd phrase that Jesus meant to pass by them. What on earth does that mean? Jesus saw them in the middle of the night, still struggling, to go after nine hours, and he decides to, you know, walk out there. He waits until about 3 a.m., and he walks out there just to pass by them? What does that mean? Well, Mark has been constantly alluding to the Old Testament to making connections between Jesus and Yahweh, the I Am, back in Exodus. And this is just like that. Exodus thirty-three nineteen, 19, Moses asks God to reveal himself. He wants to see God's glory. And he says, God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you, to you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, or I am. And when he finally gets to it in Exodus 34, verse 6, It says that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. First Kings 19, I think is probably my favorite scene of God passing by someone and revealing his glory. That's the scene in first Kings chapter 19 is when Elijah, he's depressed He needs help. He thinks he's the only person who worships the Lord. And the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke the pieces of the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. In all of these scenes, the intention is to reveal the glory of God. And what way could Jesus more reveal the glory of God to these disciples, the glory of who he is, than to pass by before them, walking on the water, as Psalm 77 says, something that God does. He treads on the water, leaving footprints that are unseen. Or Job chapter 9, for that matter doing something only God could do. But he doesn't leave it there. He, he wants to show them his glory, but he does it with a particular purpose that their assurance would rest on who Jesus claimed to be. Jesus made the connection for them. He didn't just leave it up to his disciples. He said to them, they think he's a, a ghost or that word there is a phantasm, the phantom walking And they, I think, if you think you've seen a ghost do exactly what you would do if you saw a ghost, which is you would be screaming that word there. They thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and was terrified. And Jesus' reaction to them was to give them assurance. He said to them, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And did you notice in those three texts that I just quoted to you, whether it was Exodus 33 or 34 or 1 Kings 19, that God, when he's displaying his glory to his people, he does it to comfort them, to give them assurance of his love, of his character, of his faithfulness. And that's what Jesus does here. And he says, take heart, be courageous, don't be afraid, but he says something in between there. He says, it is I, ego, a me. You know, if I was reading through just Mark, if we just had the gospel of Mark, I would say that this phrase here, it's an intensification of saying I am. It's I, I am. You could read this as it is I. He's clarifying, hey, this is not a ghost. It's me. If we had just the gospel of Mark, I think that'd be a fine interpretation but we see in the gospel of john that there are seven different times where jesus takes a note to say that i am the i am god in exodus 3 verse 14 declares when he gives moses his name moses is going to pharaoh and he says in who the name of which god there you know pe- different people believe in so many different gods there's so many different claims out there which God am I gonna go before and say that I represent this, what particular God? And God says, tell Pharaoh that I am the I am, Yahweh. And anytime you read in your Bibles, the word capital L-O-R-D in the ESV, you see that behind that in the Hebrew is I am. And what Jesus is doing here. Seven times in the Gospel of John, in this scene in particular, says this is one of the Jesus' I am statements. And that makes a lot of sense when Jesus is already alluding to Exodus in our text. So he says, take heart. I am. I am the Lord. Do not be afraid. He gives them assurance based on who he is. You see, if we're going to know who Jesus is, if we're going to have a real understanding of who Jesus is as he's depicted for us in Scripture, we have the tension of these two things, that Jesus is truly God and truly man. We worship him because he is truly God. He is the I am, the only God, the only true and living God. And yet he came as a man a sympathetic high priest who knows all of our faults and foibles. But despite the fact that Jesus has been so clear about revealing this about himself, the disciples did not understand. He got into the boat with them. Verse 51, the wind ceased. Same word there that was in Mark chapter 4 when he calmed the storm then the wind ceased instantaneously upon jesus setting foot in the boat and the disciples reaction is that they were under utterly astounded the word there that's already been used a couple times in mark is they were out of their minds jesus blew their minds yet again even though they had seen this happen before in mark Gives us a really helpful note about why they're so surprised. Verse 52 For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What did they not understand about the loaves? That's an allusion to Jesus feeding the 5,000. What did they not understand about it? They understood that they were fed that they were full, that they experienced God's blessings, that they saw dramatic power. But let's take time just to think about that miracle. They ate bread that was made out of grain or barley, barley that had never been planted, barley that had never sprouted or grown or was ever harvested by anyone. If that doesn't boggle your mind, they also ate fish. Fish that had been multiplied by Jesus himself. They were eating dead fish that had never been born, that never lived, and never had died. But they were eating dead fish. This is creation out of absolutely nothing. Does that not astound you? That kind of blows my mind. If you think about Jesus... And his power to do that, it should have told them that Jesus was identifying with the God of the universe. You know, many people claim to know who Jesus is. The Jehovah Witnesses also worship Jesus, but they don't believe he is truly God. They think he's the incarnation of Michael the archangel. But to which angel did Jesus ever say, you are my beloved son? To which angel did Jesus ever, or did did the father grant such a power, such authority as to make out of nothing the loaves and the fish? But that's what they, they did not understand. But what's the reason why they did not understand? We're told it's because of their hardness of heart. That's their problem. How so? What does this mean? Does it mean that the disciples just were not in it? They didn't really feel it? No, the heart in Jewish culture, and actually in many cultures, refers to what we think of as the mind. That's why I said in order to know who Jesus is, God has to remove your boneheadedness. I think that's a phrase that kind of captures the idea of hard-hearted in this text. Boneheaded, someone with a thick skull. But this is this thick skull. Yes, is it lacking in intelligence from the outside? Yeah, it is. If you saw Jesus doing all these things, the problem is, is that we often think that, well, this is so obvious. How are they missing who Jesus is? Is it just because they're stupid? Is that the issue? Is this, we know it's not, Mark is not telling us that it's an emotional problem, that it's somehow an intellectual problem, that they can't get their minds around it, that they have too thick of skulls, that Jesus keeps revealing over and over again, yet they can't get it through. Is it because they're dumb? I think it's helpful to return to the book of Exodus again because we also know someone who was is hard-hearted in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh. You know, it, you have to be a pretty intelligent person to lead a nation well, to feed and organize different things. He was an expert in Egypt and yet constantly Pharaoh, his heart was hard towards God. At the very outset, by the way, God says that I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, Moses, and you're gonna proclaim all these miracles. You're gonna demonstrate my glory to him that I am the true and living God, but I am going to harden his heart that I might display my glory so that all the world might see my power to deliver my people with my hand. And then we read something curious when we get to Pharaoh. Pharaoh sees Moses turn the Nile water into blood. He sees gnats multiplying, frogs multiplying. He sees the sun go out and become the world become pitch, pitch black in the middle of the day. And after all these events, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. You see, my friends, this is not an intellectual disability that the disciples are suffering from, nor that for Pharaoh. What they suffer from Is rebellion. Why did Pharaoh not let God's people go? It was because he didn't want to. He refused to believe it. He did not want to acknowledge the fact that God was more powerful than him. You know, I think there's a lot of things that we know, but we don't truly know. Or comprehend or understand my wife always tries to convince me that some foods are healthier than others, and in my mind, I can rationalize and understand why things like energy drinks are not very healthy, or I like gummy gummy bears or whatnot while i 'm eating when i 'm going on a drive. I understand in my mind that it 's unhealthy for me but I still eat it. You know, there seems to be this disconnect between what I say I believe, what I say I know in my head, and what I actually do in my life, what I actually trust in. And the problem with that is that if we want to be healthy, we have to have an understanding of health food long before we get sick, long before our bodies rot and decay, We choose, though, to eat the unhealthy food because it tastes good, because we want to. Some it takes in order to switch over to eating healthy. Sometimes it takes us to develop diabetes or develop some sort of disorder or disease. But it doesn't have to take that long. To be wise would be to look at the facts of the matter and live accordingly. And that's what God is constantly calling his disciples to do. If we're going to know who Jesus is, we need to know what he has revealed about himself. That he's the God-man. Truly God and truly man. And taking that, our assurance, from Jesus' word himself. I cannot tell you how many times people have told me, you know, my God would never do X, Y, and Z when the Bible describes X, Y, and Z, whether it's send someone to hell or judge our lives or that God, the God who created everything would care about how we live. We need to take God at his word. If we're going to truly know him. And we come to this problem. I think constantly when we're reading our Bibles, we constantly see how the Israelites Or seem to have a thick skull. The Pharisees, really boneheaded. The disciples, why can't they get it? Are they dumb? No. It's a problem of rebellion. It's the problem that's described in Romans chapter 1: the suppression of truth in unrighteousness, doing what we know ought not to be done, and choosing to serve the creature rather than the creator. Jesus has been revealed in the scriptures so clearly. If we know who Jesus is, what's the benefits? We already read Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism, I think, has the best first question. The question that he asks is, what's your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer that they give is that, that I am not my own but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, Not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is what Jesus spoke about. Heidelberg Catechism question 1 the answer that it gives summarizes what Jesus means that to know me is to have eternal life. Do you know Jesus? I'm not asking you, do, could you recognize him on the street? We haven't been given any physical descriptions. What I'm asking you when I say that question is, do you know him as he has revealed himself in the scriptures? And does that knowledge connect to your life? Do you have true faith, living faith, living faith that knows Jesus, not just as the God of the universe or as a man who lived 2000 years ago or as someone who possibly rose from the dead, or at least that's what people claim. No, I'm asking, do you know Jesus as your Lord, as your savior, as your only hope in life and in death? Do you know his transformative power, the transformative power of the resurrection, giving you new affections? If you do not know, God is able to change a human heart. He's able to change the stubborn, thick-headed heart and change it into one sensitive to our sins and one that acknowledges God as our Savior. Let's go to that Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, you have been so clear about who you are. May your Holy Spirit give us saving faith. That we would believe whatsoever is revealed in the word on the authority that God himself is speaking in it that we would act differently depending on the different passage, that we would yield obedience to its commands, tremble at its threatenings, and embrace its promises. But most importantly, Lord, would you grant us a faith, a saving faith that accepts, receives, and rests upon Jesus Christ and the salvation he provides alone, that he would be our only hope in life and in death. It's in this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible's name that we pray, amen.